Welcome to Digital Hospitality. I am your host, Sean Walchuk. This is a Cali Barbecue Media production. Every single week we talk about our thesis, which is every business needs to be digital and every business needs to be in the hospitality business. That is digital hospitality. We talk about how can we all become better storytellers digitally. Um, one of the things that we like to explore is people that are in media, people that are in marketing, people that are influencers, people that are podcasters, uh, entrepreneurs, people that are in the hospitality space. And we've been very fortunate as a barbecue media company to make some incredible connections. Um, we call them oh shit moments because of the internet. And those oh shit moments led me to um, today's guest, which is Jim Trotter. He is uh, not only our guest, but he's become a close friend. And um, I'm going to let you guys in on the oh shit moment that introduced me to Jim. Um, back in 2015, Jim Trotter was on a local sports radio show um, here in San Diego on the Dave and Jeff show on 1360. And he was promoting his book about Junior Seau, um, the life and death of a football icon. Uh, Junior Seau, as many of you know, Chargers players, Hall of Fame player um, that took his life. Um, but Jim was on on the program with Dave and Jeff, uh, reminiscing about his time meeting Junior, covering Junior as uh, the beat writer for the Chargers. Uh, Jim worked for the Union Tribune for 18 years. Then he went to Sports Illustrated. Then he went to ESPN. Now he works for the NFL Network, um, and he's also host of the Huddle and Flow podcast. And uh, but he was on the show um, talking about the book and reminiscing and talking about. Junior's restaurant. Junior had a restaurant here in Mission Valley, a um, very popular restaurant. And that's where Jim and uh, Jeff and CS Keys used to go to watch Fight Night. Um, huge fight fans, boxing fans, UFC fans. And um, it just so happens there was an upcoming event at um, that weekend. There was a fight. And Callie, we've been one of our things that we love to do is host fight night. So I was listening to the conversation, driving in my car, heard them talking about it. And as sales was no longer in business, um, I sent out an invite through Twitter um, to Jim Trotter, Jeff Dotseth and CS Keys. And thanks to their attentiveness on Twitter, they responded, yes, we'll come out to Cali. And that was the beginning of our friendship. And uh, Jim, it's been a, it's been an incredible six uh, six years that we've known each other. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, you come on, man! You know, anytime you ask, you know I'm there, so it's all good. The part of this story you didn't tell is that we kept coming back, not only for the friendship, <laughs> but because you laid out that platter in front of us. Yes, sample platter that had everything, so we were hooked. There was no way we were not coming back. That's, uh, you know, the, I mean, it's one of the things that I love the most about this podcast is it allows me to explore, like I said, our thesis, but it's that technology has broken down so many barriers before from people that you can admire from afar, but you can develop a relationship with it if you're willing to put yourself out there, you know, and, um, you know, social media, there's so many documentaries out there. We get, it gets so many bad raps of all the bad things and all the negatives and we can go down there, but I always like to focus on the positives and the positives is, you know, they're, would you and I have been friends if it weren't for Twitter? Possibly. Um, but Twitter certainly helped that because of storytelling. You were literally on the podcast, uh, on a radio show, terrestrial radio show, AM radio, with Dave Palais and Jeff Dotsaf, who have now both become great friends as well, um, very close to me. And 
because of Twitter, because of that interaction, because of a willingness that we have common interests. Hey, we're hosting a fight night. You guys want to come over for fight night. Um, you came over, but one of the things, this is the second time we've had you on the podcast. The first time we had you above the butcher shop at, um, Derek Marceau's shop at Valley Farm Market when this was behind when it was called Behind the Smoke and you shared your Twitter story. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about Twitter when you were um, working at Sports Illustrated and and uh, how that went down. Yeah, you know, um, back then this would have been 2000, roughly eight or nine. Um, I go out to New York for a staff meeting we were having at Sports Illustrated and they bring in the um, marketing and promotion team and whatnot. And they start talking about they want us to do more social media. And in particular, they wanted us to get on Twitter. And I'm not a big promotion guy, you know, that sort of thing or self-promotion guy. And so initially I was like, I'm not interested in being on, on Twitter. I, you know, I really didn't know much about Twitter at that time. That tells you how um, ignorant I was to social media. And um, finally I started thinking, you know, it didn't take me long, but it was like, look, the business is changing. The industry is changing and I can either change with it and, you know, continue to progress or, I can be a dinosaur and say, nope, I'm doing it the way I've always done it and sort of be left behind. And so I decided to get on Twitter. And I said at that point, you know, I was going to try and make the best of it in terms of trying to engage fans, you know, to talk about teams and those sorts of things. And, and again, just being so naive, I, I, I never knew what a troll was or anything like that because I, I, again, was never on Twitter and didn't realize how many folks just want to get on there and argue, you know, as yeah. opposed to just having an honest discussion about the pros and cons of something or, or the good or bad or whatever it may be. And so then I had to learn to navigate those waters. But really for me, social media was more of just a way to keep up with the times and um, to stay relevant, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense, but it, I always, I use your example a lot because it's happened so fast. And I mean, we started our restaurant in 2008, the first iPhone came out in 2007. And, you know, when that iPhone comes out, it's a real understanding of like, that's really not that long ago, but all these companies that have been built on the backs of these smartphones, like the Facebook, like Instagram, like Twitter, like YouTube, like all of them, you know, you can just go down the list of all these different platforms that have allowed people to have a voice and to allow people to interact without having to go through a traditional channel. As somebody that spent his life in journalism before the internet, how did you used to get feedback from an article that you would write? Letters to the editor. Uh, and that's how old school I am. You have to remember when I came out of college in 1986, there was no internet. Yep. Um, you know, cell phones were as big as a phone book. <laughs> so um, the only feedback we could get was people writing into the newspaper. Like handwritten, handwritten letter sent to yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, handwritten or typed or, or then leaving a message on your, your work phone, um, you know, filling up your voicemail. Uh, this was a time, remember, when I first came out where for me to get news on what was happening with other teams across the country, I would literally go down to the corner newsstand on a Sunday and pick up, say, the Washington Post Sunday edition 
or the Miami Herald Sunday edition. It wasn't, you know, for the young generation now, they probably laugh at that because all they have to do is click on, you know, those websites for those papers and and sure. boom, the, the information is instantaneous. But back then, everything was by snail mail. Um, and so even in the Sunday editions, as you know, they would put they would put them together on like a Friday so that they could reach the West Coast in time on Sunday morning. So even then you're you're behind. But um, but that was really the only way for people to, to, to reach me or other media members was uh, either writing a letter to the editor, sending a letter directly to you to the paper or, you know, leaving a message on your voicemail. Do you remember the first article that you wrote that got significant traction and that you got letters or the editor called you in or? No, it's, it's I'm so old, Sean, that um, they all kind of run together. They all run, you don't remember the first one? I really don't. Um, you know, I, I, you have to remember, I started my career in Muskegon, Michigan, uh, which I had never heard of when I took the job. So I had never even been to the state of Michigan when I took the job. And um, so from there to Tacoma, Washington, to um, San Diego, to the the Union, and then subsequently the Union Tribune, and then on to Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and now NFL Network. Um, there have just been so many articles. Um, the body so of the feedback that yeah, I can't I can't remember all, all of them. Do you so one of the things I mean I love having conversations with you and bringing people in you know through this podcast of understanding the difference between you know when we when we try to break down the internet as video audio written word and images you know and it's really much easier to start to think of it that way than to start thinking of all the different platforms and the algorithms and how do you you know gain traction if you get down to it truth vibrates the fastest. So when you write something that's compelling, when you do compelling work, no matter what medium it is, it's going to gain traction. Uh, do you remember when you decided to go down this journalism path? Like what, what, what were you chasing? You know, truthfully, it started when I was in high school. Uh, I had an interest in writing for the school paper and I couldn't because I was playing on, you know, our high school teams. And so it would have been very awkward for me to write about my teammates in the school. Yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I, I never, I never had that opportunity. And when I was preparing to go to college, I was trying to figure out, okay, what do I want to do next? And obviously I love sports and I love football and had a chance to play some small college football, but I decided, you know what, I'm never going to be good enough to play in the NFL. So I really need to try and focus on, preparing myself for life. And so it was like, okay, what, what can I do um, to, to be successful, to make a living, all those sorts of things. And initially, it sounds so crazy now, my senior year in high school, I took an accounting class and it was like, and I, and I got an A in the class and I was like, okay, I want to be an accountant. And then it was like, do I really want to sit behind a desk, you know, eight hours a day, nine hours a day, and just do numbers, which people who know me would laugh at that now because I'm so bad with numbers <laughs> and can't add worth a, you know, anything. And so I'm, I ultimately said, no, that's not really the route I want to go. So what else do I enjoy? And, and I, I enjoy sports. So I said to myself, what are ways that I can be close to the games and not actually play them? 
And one of the ways was writing. So by the time I, I got to college, I had a pretty good idea of what route I wanted to go and was locked in on that and, and stayed on that. The only real change occurred really my senior year of college. I was a broadcast journalism major and I decided that I didn't want to go broadcast, that I wanted to go print. And the reason was, you know, again, for people who know me, I'm fairly conservative by nature. And I didn't like the idea of being judged on how I looked or how I sounded or all of these things that didn't really matter in my opinion. I wanted to be judged on the quality of the work. And so my senior year, without much of a print background, I decided that I wanted to go print. And it's one of the reasons I wound up in Muskegon, uh, Michigan, as I say, it was a small 50,000 circulation paper. But what it did um, is it offered me an opportunity to continue to learn the business, the print business, without feeling that pressure of, you know, man, every mistake could be lethal. And when I say mistake, it could be an approach to um, uh, a story, how I wrote a story, um, whether it was good or bad, all those sorts of things. It was just a place where you could go and kind of just learn. And, um, and it was perfect because coming out of school, I had two offers, one in Muskegon for a full-time position and one with a Cleveland plane dealer for a six month internship, which they were trying to tell me could become a full-time position after those six months. And again, the way I think is, you know what? If I go to Cleveland, knowing that I have some deficiencies, don't do as well as I want to do, and then they don't renew it, I'm kind of out on the street. So for me, it was more of let me go someplace again, develop my foundation, and build on that going forward. And that's what I did. And, and it, I believe it was the right choice then, and I believe it's the right choice now. So did you decide first it was going to be sports, or did you decide first that it was going to be no sports? No, it was going to be sports. sports. And it was yeah. going to be print. Yeah, exactly. When did you fall in love with writing? It's a good question. Um, I remember taking some, some courses in, in, in um, high school where we had creative writing courses. And I, again, I'm, I'm more of a straight line sort of guy. And I remember the, the teacher, you know, giving us these tools for and, and in terms of our thought process of how to write creatively, as opposed to just giving the who, what, when, where, why, and how that you give in journalism. And I remember being intrigued by that. And I wouldn't say that I was necessarily very good at it. You know, I would argue today, I still don't view myself as one of these great writers. You know, the guys that I worked with at Sports Illustrated, I'm, I marvel at, at their, um, at their prose, man, they're, they're just, to me, they're so good. Uh, they were so good. So I, I always feel like, and still feel like I'm more of a grinder. And, um, the interesting thing about this business for young writers and whatnot is you, you always, many times you try and emulate people that, that you like or you respect in terms of how they write you know, their style and everything. And ultimately what you come to learn through time and through error um, is that there's only one you and your voice is unique. So be true to you because you're never going to do it as good as someone else trying to be them because they are them, you know, they are unique to themselves. 
So be unique to you. Follow your voice. It was funny when I got to when I got to Sports Illustrated. It was the first time an editor had ever said to me, you know, use your voice. And I was like, wow, um, I, I get it, you know, and now I have to try and do that. And so whenever I get into, I get stuck or I get into trouble and I think I'll, cause I, I still go back, I read, you know, I have, you know, the, the, um, books from Jim Murray and, and, and Ralph Wiley and all these others. And, and at times I will read their prose, just, you know, marveling at it. But then I have to come back and remind myself, they're not me. I'm not them. And I have to be myself, but it sometimes it just sort of jump starts me. Um, if I'm stuck, you know, in, in, in the process of writing something particularly long form. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by anybody that's a true craftsman and you're a craftsman that also studies other people doing their craft. I mean, whether it's a professional athlete or you've been fortunate to cover so many owners in the NFL, so many front office executives. What's the common theme of the people that excel that are playing the game within the game? Because there's people that excel that make the Pro Bowl. But I'm talking about what, you know, you being a Hall of Fame voter as somebody that, you know, covers true excellence. What are what are those characteristics that makes let's start with it with with the athletes? Well, it, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, we had Steph Curry on the on the podcast. And one of the things I ask him is, regardless of sport, when you look at the truly elite athletes, is there a common thread through all of them, whether it's Steph or Tom Brady or, you know, whoever it may be in baseball, that sort of thing. Um, And one is is your commitment to it, your passion for it to be great and and the work ethic and what you're willing to put in and and, and those sorts of things. and the other thing is being able to manage when you're at that level, being able to manage all that goes on around you. And there was a saying, I can't remember who told me this, which athlete, but they said, always keep the main thing, the main thing, meaning don't let all of these outside distractions, whether it's endorsements or media or fans, whatever, distract from what you are here to do and what you are trying to accomplish. So keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think the great athletes are able to, to do that. They keep the main thing, the main thing, meaning they are so focused on what it is they are trying to accomplish um, that they don't go off course. They don't take detours, um, unscheduled detours, you know, if you will. So uh, among, you know, more than anything, that's what I find with them is, is, is this, this, I always say great players don't want to be great. They need to be great. And, and, then, and there's a subtle difference there, but it's so significant. You know, um, everybody wants to be great, but the great ones truly need to be great. You yeah. know, they're, 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 not, they're not accepting of, well, I can do it this one game or this one night and not the next night. For them, it's like every time I step on that hardwood, I step on that grass field or that turf field, whatever it may be, I'm bringing it, you know, and I have a standard that I have to stand up to that's higher than what anyone else can put on me. And that's the other thing with these guys that Steph was talking about, the way that that they are self-driven, self-motivated, and all of the outside expectations that you think you put on them don't compare to what they put on themselves. 
I find that fascinating. It's that relentless obsession. I mean, it's the it's the Mamba mentality. It's it's a spirit. You know, it's it's a spirit that literally, you know, the Kobe Bryant's of the world, the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's, they're not playing against the competition. They're playing against themselves. Yeah. And it's that obsession of every single day I'm playing against myself that I have to be better where they can't understand how does anybody else not live like that, which because is why, which is why it's not a, it's not a want. Yeah. It's a need. It's, it's a, a need, you yeah. know? So and you're absolutely right. So when you're, when you're around greatness, when you cover greatness, is there an aura of like people have talked about when you're around Michael Jordan, just the way that it feels like there's a light radiating around people, you know, JFK, certain, certain people in life, no matter what their craft is, they bring this presence to them. Have you felt that presence covering athletes? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's an energy. Um, And part of that is, is, we created in our own minds as well because we know we're around someone great. And so for me, I've always said this, you know, whether you like someone or not, whether you like his team or not, me, I'm always fascinated with those who are great at what they do. It doesn't matter who they are. And I'm always interested in the process of what makes them great and how do they go about being great. So I remember I did this piece with Jerry Jones and after the piece aired, there were these people who, you know, chiming in about how much they hate Jerry and these different things that he's done that they didn't like and this and the other. And I'm like, that's all fine. That's well and good. But all I know is that when it comes to business, he is one of the best in the world. And right. so I want to know why that is. I want to know what motivates him. I want to know how he views a deal versus how someone else views a deal and why he's willing to take a certain risk that others might not be willing to take all those sorts of things. So that, uh, yeah, all that, all that motivates me, fascinates me. And people like, you know, Oh, well, you, you're just blinded because you get to go up in his helicopter and whatnot. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool, but that's not what, what motivated me to do the piece. Correct. Motivated me to do the piece is to understand how this one man helped change the face of the NFL, how he, I don't want to say single-handedly, but you cannot, I don't know that you can pick anyone else and say they had as big an impact on the NFL becoming what it is today versus what is what it was when he came into it. His vision for marketing, his vision for grandness, all of these things, um, other owners weren't thinking that way. And to the point where he even took on his own league to try and, and grow the NFL. As it's just those sorts of those sorts of people fascinate me. What was unexpected about covering Jerry? Because like you said, you have a preconceived notion. You've been covering the NFL. You know who he is. You've met him. You've done it. Like, but then you go to do this pace, this Hall of Fame piece, which is you know one of my favorite pieces of work that you did. And I know it was edited down to a very tiny segment that uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But it was it's fascinating for me as somebody that loves Jerry Jones, that loves the Dana Whites of the world. It's these people, these magnetic people that no matter what the controversy is that surround them, they wouldn't accomplish what they were able to accomplish if it wasn't for that spirit. It, that relentless obsession to literally can be what like they have to be this 
And, and, and the other thing too, Sean, is the, those two pe- people you mentioned, Jerry Jones and Dana White, they're not impacted by what you think of them. <laughs> not at all. Zero. You know, they're Zero. the type of people who say, say what you want to say, just make sure you spell my name right. That you is know? correct. They, and, they actually get off of it. The more that the more that people say something that they can't do it, the more that people tell Michael Jordan he can't play defense, the more that he actually starts to play much better defense. Yeah. You know, like Jerry, what 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 really um, was fascinating to me is remember, he started building AT&T Stadium and then the market, the, the economy just tanked. You know, and he's all in on it. You know, pretty much everything he owns is all into the stadium and the market tanks. And where some might have said, "Okay, we've got to scale everything back. Jerry said, you know what? We've got to make it even bigger. Yeah, we've got to make we got to be even grander, you know, and and that's what he did. And so. Was that a risk? Heck, yeah, that was a risk. But. He went ahead and took it. He had a vision, you know, and, and you know, some people try and play scared. I call it the prevent defense. Yep. And you don't win when you play prevent defense. So you very rarely win when you play prevent defense. He's someone who's always on the attack. And I just, as again, as someone who's so conservative by nature, that fascinates me because I can't sit here and tell you that I would have done the same thing that he did. Yeah. I, I might have scaled back you know, and tried to ride that thing out, but he didn't and he won big because of it, you know? So um, Dana White, you know, another example, as you mentioned, during the pandemic, everyone's focused on what they can't do. Dana White said, we're gonna find a way to put these fights on, you know? And, And even if it means going all the way to Abu Dhabi and he does it and he did it. And more power to them, you know. So, just folks like that—they—they—they they, um, they keep my energy going. They keep my interest going. You know, you can only write so many game stories, so many, you know, um, of the perfunctory features, those sorts of things. But when you get an opportunity to get around people like that, and they give you the access, um, man, I could spend days just hanging out, you know, learning from them. So I want to talk about uh, the Huddle and Flow podcast. I couldn't tell you how excited I was once you told me you and Steve um, had finally launched this podcast. Yeah, people should know you were the one pushing me for quite some time. I've I've been pushing you since we launched in 2017. Once I realized you know, what long form audio storytelling can do. Um, There's nobody better than you to be getting on that platform, given how many incredible relationships you've made, but also the stories that you're willing to tell because you are playing the game within the game. You want to know context and you want to share, you know, not just what's happened on the field, but what's happening beyond the field. And, you know, for me, that's compelling. It's compelling because it's truth. You know, and like I said, you know, truth vibrates the fastest. Uh, what have you learned by by working with Steve and putting on this uh, Huddle and Flow podcast? Oh, where do I begin? Um, one the one thing that the podcast has done is it's an affirmation that there is a market for it. That there are people out there who are interested in what Steve and I have to say in terms of when we when we first thought about doing this podcast back in 2018. What we said is that there are a limited number, relatively speaking, of of black 
men and women covering the NFL and covering sports in general, really. When you go in the press box, sometimes it can be a lonely place. And then we see the coverage of some of these black athletes and we say, you know, the perspective of, and, and, and this is not in any way saying someone is racist or something, but life experiences are different for those who may have been raised in a white community versus those who were raised in a black community, those who were raised in a, a well-off community versus those who were raised in, in a poverty-laden um, um, community. And so Steve and I came up and said, look, we want to do a podcast where we can speak to issues of our life experiences, being black men in America, um, and what those experiences were like, how it impacts what we cover, and how it might impact the people we're covering, those sorts of things. So I think there were some people who thought, uh, that's such a narrow prism, and because we don't relate to those experiences, there really isn't gonna be a market for it. And initially, they never told us no, but they never said yes, and they just let the idea die on a vine for two years, two plus years. And then after the, the murder of George Floyd, when everyone was into this enlightenment mode, um, they came back and said, hey, remember that podcast you guys talked about? Are you inter still interested in doing it? And we just kind of looked at each other and kind of laughed like, okay, we get what this is about. But you know what? Um, that's okay. We'll take it and do what we do. And that's what we've done. And there is a market for it. And it has resonated with people, maybe not all people, but that's okay. We weren't necessarily trying to reach all people. We really wanted to reach, um, number one, um, from a cultural standpoint, that audience, our audience, um, and to give a voice to those people who don't have a voice and feel they don't have a voice. And so it's it's been um, it's been fun. It's been educational. It's been empowering. All of those things, and I'm just I'm just happy that we were able to do it at least for this one year. You know, to at a time when the country is going through so many things, at a time when the NFL is going through so many things, particularly as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Um, this was this was an important time to have it for us. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, from the the range of guests is what I appreciate the most. Um, having known you and having developed a friendship with you is, you know, it's from anywhere from you know from Jerry Rice, Patrick Mahomes, Arthur Blank, Chuck D from Public Enemy, Harry Champion, Jamila Hill, you know, Sean Payton, Steph Curry. I mean, the amount of people that you've had on. You have them on because you want to have them on. And that's something that, you know, people that aren't obsessed with the media like I am, you know, huge networks, there's a structure in place to understand what gets broadcast, whether it's on TV, whether it's in print, whether it's on radio, it gets edited down and this is the story and this is what we're presenting. Very rarely do you get the long form context to understand what's really going on, to let somebody truly have a voice, to let someone truly share their story. And by listening to these long form conversations, I feel like I'm getting a seat at the table at a very important table at a very important time to educate myself. You know, my grandfather is Bulgarian. My wife is Bulgarian, but I'm, you know, I grew up, I grew up in La Jolla. I grew up in white immigrant privilege, you know, but for me to understand there's a lot of fucked up things that are happening. 
a lot. And it, I never realized it was as bad as it was until we all saw what's happened in the last year. And it's actually, you know, to see people that I know, the things that they post on Facebook or that they post on Twitter, you know, frankly, I'm not I'm not friends with them anymore. You know, I no longer follow them because it's yeah, a- no, it's always funny to me when you post certain things like um, and then you people talk about they lost so many followers on social media and whatnot. <laughs> and and I never worry about that number. It's like it is what it is. I don't right. do this for followers. You know, that's why I was interesting when people were out buying followers and whatnot. And I get the whole game of being an influencer and all of that. And, and but it just look, I always say just be authentic and be yourself. And what for me, I try and be respectful of the audience and say everything I post is not going to be something of social significance. Um, because a lot of people do, for instance, follow me for sports. I get that. That's first and foremost. So I try and be respectful of that. But there also are times where there are things that take place in this country that are just so egregious that, you know, you have to you have to make people aware of it. Um, you have to show it and you have to be true to who you are in terms of how you're feeling about a given subject at a, at a certain time. So with our podcast, you know, someone once said to me, um, I don't I wish I could tell you who it was. But in this business, you know, um, follow your passion. Write about what interests you. Because if it doesn't interest you, why is it going to interest the reader? You know, it's going to be reflected in your copy. So make sure it's something that interests you. Um, if there's an anecdote or a nugget or whatever. And, and I've tried to, at times, again, when I get in trouble or I get stuck, I try and remind myself of that. Um, come back to what interests you. And ultimately, that will relate to or, or that will resonate with your audience and if it doesn't well it doesn't but at least you were truly true to yourself which makes it easier to write i think where we get stuck writing sometimes again is where we really don't feel anything about a story we've yeah. just been assigned something so we got to go cover it and there's no emotional for lack of a better word investment um, in it at that time and and you can tell when you read someone's copy, whether or not they were really into a story or not. And um, so as I get older, I try and pick more stories where I, I actually feel invested in it as opposed to just one that I need or have to do. Has there been something unexpected in the form format of podcasting for you? Um, the one thing I've always tried to ask our guests or people who have done it for a while is, what can you tell us in terms of connecting with an audience? Um, do you go longer? Do you go shorter? Do you go topical or do you just have a conversation, you know, sort of all over the place, if you will? Um, just things like that. And um, do you need to go big name guests? Is that more important than say subject matter? All those sorts of things. And um, it's funny at times the name, the name recognition will drive the numbers. Sure. But at the same time, I, I just feel it's so important to talk about subjects that matter to you and not just a name, a big name. And there have been names that we've sort of, we kick around because we book our own guests. Nobody does it for us. We, we book our own guests. I love the show. 
I do. I know. I know. And I can tell. Yeah, we we do our own research. We do our own interviews. We do our own editing. Everything with the show is done by Steve, um, myself and Thomas Warren, who also graduated from Howard as well. All three of us graduated from Howard and we do all the work ourselves. And um, but there have been times where people have tried to pitch us on guests and you know, if all three of us aren't in agreement that, yeah, this is someone we're interested in or we feel it fits with what we're trying to do, then we pass on it. And sometimes that's kind of awkward, too. Yeah. Where, you know, you know, you you have friends or whoever who are asking to get on and it's like, it just doesn't work right now. And once the more popular the show gets, the harder those those are going to be to decline. Yeah. You know, the thing, the thing that's funny about the show, Sean, to be truthful, like we, st- when we started, we were like, okay, we're going to do once a week. And then we had so many people that we wanted to talk to. Yeah. And all of a sudden it became twice a week. Yeah. And we just looked at the numbers recently, a couple of weeks ago, and we started in September and we did 54 shows from September to March. And I didn't realize, you know, I was a little naive to this podcast game because people think, ah, you just sit down and you start talking. It's more involved than that. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yes. And, 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 you know, and you got to do it. Your- it has to be an obsession. If you do it for the right reasons, it has to be an obsession. It has to be a need, you know, back to if it, I have to do this show. Yeah. If one person listens to it, then I win. But I listen to it. I get to have a conversation with Jim. And I know that it's so fascinating for me that I know other people are going to be fascinated with it. And that's why we have such a wide range of guests. But but it requires people don't realize this. It requires research. Yeah. If we're going to have Soledad O'Brien on the show or we're going to have Lindsay Davis from ABC News or we're going to have Chuck D and you come on there and don't know much about their background, you only know the surface stuff, they know that. Yes. And so they're less invested in it. And so it was it was funny to me, we were interviewing Lindsay Davis once and I had done some research on her about how she got into the news business. And she had told this story once where she was actually on um, a student abroad. She was spending a semester in Spain. And one day she turns on the TV and doesn't necessarily fully understand the language, but um, she sees the news and the passion and whatnot, and something just hit her and said, that's what I want to do. And wow. that's where her news career kind of started. So I brought it up to her and, 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 you know, and then they say to you, how did you kind of, how did you know that? <laughs> wow, you've really done your research. Yes. And so when they feel you've invested in it, they're more willing to open up. And share to give you greater insight into who they are and what they're doing, which is great for your audience. Has it been the exploratory process? Because you spend so much of your time in the NFL. This podcast has given you different subject matters to go and do research in. Has that how has that been for you? It's it's time consuming at times. So, for instance, we had James Lopez, who is a, a movie producer. And he's actually, they're working on, just started work on a biopic on Doug Williams, um, the former Washington quarterback, Super Bowl MVP and whatnot. And I don't know anything about the movie business. I love it. I love movies and all of that. But, but what I did there, you know, you read up on his background and whatnot. And then in those situations, what I try and do is just say, 
I'm part of the audience. What would the audience want to know? Yeah. And just, and actually I approached football when I was a beat writer. That's the way I approached my work as a beat writer is to say, what is it that the fans want to know? What are the questions that they want to ask? And that's why I think I had, you know, I had my critics, but I also had my supporters when I was a beat writer because I actually did try and approach it as a fan and say, if I'm sitting across from LT or I'm sitting across from Drew Brees or Philip Rivers, whoever it is, um, what is it that Charger fan wants to know from this player today? And those are the questions I would try and ask, even, even if sometimes they were uncomfortable. But I'm trying to be that conduit or that voice for the fan. And so, again, when I get in situations on the podcast where I might not be as well-versed in a subject matter, even having done some research, then I go back to what is it that interests me? What is it that I want to know just as a fan, a fan would want to know? So you start talking to James Lopez about the process of making films from the very beginning. How does an idea formulate? How do you take an idea, something from being an idea to actually being a script that's approved? How do you get it approved? Who do you have to go to? Um, how many times are you turned down? You know, is there a window there that you say, okay, it's been turned down seven times, let me move on. Which is like with Namdi Asamoa, Who's do, who did Sylvie's Love, you know, the former Raiders player, now turned actor. Um, he told me when they got that script, that script had been turned down six different times. Yeah. And yet they decided that it was worthwhile enough to keep pushing. And ultimately they get it approved. And it's one of the best films I've seen on, on um, Amazon Prime during this pandemic. It was just, it was such a beautifully done film. So just stuff like that, just, just be in the moment and ask the questions that, that your audience would want to ask and not be, not be afraid of looking stupid sometimes. Or like, I remember when we had Ron Rivera on and at the time he was, he had been diagnosed with cancer and he's about to begin the, the process. So is there a delicate way to ask a grown man if he's scared about what he's about to go through? And I just said, you know, in my mind, I'm saying, this is what people want to know. So just ask it yeah. and he'll appreciate the honesty. And so I just asked him, are you scared? And his answer was great. And he said, yes, you know, and then went on to explain it. Why? You know, so um, again, it, it, part of it gets back to just authenticity, you know, and not doing something for the camera or how you're going to look or any of that. Just have an honest conversation with people, you know, do your homework and then have an honest conversation with them. Speaking of honest conversations, you're going to be a Professor Trotter soon. You're going to start having some honest conversations with the next generation of journalists Absolutely. in San Diego State. Bro, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am. Seriously. I can't, I can't tell you how excited I am for those students. There couldn't be a better professor to, to give, them, give them the truth. What, uh, how do but you I'm also, But I'm also using that word scared. There's a part of me that's scared, too. What are you scared about? I've never done it. So... You've you been, know, I've been to a class. I've been to SDSU for classes that you've you've gone up and spoken at. Speaking is one thing. Teaching. Te teaching is another. Okay. So you have to formulate your syllabus. You have to formulate each class, what it is you're trying to teach. You have to you have to find a way to get through to those class. You and these are things I think about that I don't want to shortchange them. I want to make sure that whatever we do, 
that it's something that's actually going to help them once they get out into that real world. You know, those sorts of things. That's a tremendous responsibility. Some might say if you take it seriously enough that it's a burden in some ways. So I take that seriously. And so it scares me a little bit because I've never done it. And I want to make sure that whatever I do, that ultimately at the end of the day, it does end up helping these students become productive journalists. So so I'm excited, but I'm also a little scared um, being truthful about it. But I, I know one thing, I'm going to give it all I got. And I know that with each class, I will get better. And therefore, hopefully, they will be better for it. So, so I'm excited about it. You know, like you say, I've spoken at various classes. Um, I recently got to do a one, um, to be a guest lecturer for a day at a friend's class up at San Jose State. And I love that. And, and again, I learned from that. He gives me the feedback afterwards about things I could have done and how I could have engaged in this so it's all going to be a learning experience, but I'm I'm truly looking forward to it, man. It's it's I'm excited about that as I am anything recently, you know, in the last few years. I'm super excited for your opportunity for those students. Um, I know you're going to take the utmost responsibility and care to make it memorable and to give them the truth. And the truth is not just about the craft of journalism, but it's also the business. Oh. That's something that I think, you know, I'm always fascinated with college curriculums and what I learned now in business as opposed to what was being taught in the textbooks. And it's, you know, like we started behind the smoke because there's a bunch of shit that happens in business that nobody told me anything about. Exactly. That's people, you know, it's like you have to deal with people. You've got to deal with institutions. You've got to deal with this is the way things have always been done. And um, how do you navigate that? And navigating that is life. Yeah. And here's the other thing. You just said something that's key. You said how it's always been done. Nothing frustrates me more. <laughs> I mean, nothing than hearing people say to me, well, we do it this way because it's always been done this way. I, and, and that's something that I learned from, you know, you talk about these people who are great at what they do and whatnot yes. um, and being risk takers is because they're not afraid to say, you know what, we can try something new. And I, I just, I'm just saying, if I ever owned a company or business and an employee or a manager says, oh, we got to do it this way because it's always been done that way. See you. You're gone. Yes. You know? Correct. Um, so I, I just, I, I hate that. And I find, especially many times in the NFL, people will say to you they want creative ideas or they want you to think outside the box, and then you bring it to them, and then they're afraid to step outside of the box because if it doesn't work, they feel like now their their rear ends are on the line. Correct. And I, that's just such a poor culture, in my opinion, to be operating in. You know, I, hey, everyone knows you're not going to bat a thousand, so you know, you got to take some chances. You're going to swing and miss at times and that's okay. But when you hit that grand slam, you'll know it. It makes you appreciate it even more. So, um, yeah, like you said, there's so many things about the business. It's not just about journalism that I want to talk to these students about. It's about the business and real life things real life. That you will face. So, yeah, you know, I think you can tell I get a little excited about it because I'm I'm really looking forward to it. 
Oh, it's a, it's a huge opportunity. And I, I can't wait to, to see how that goes. I, I hope, um, you know, you and Steve figure out a way to keep this huddle and flow going. I know um, there's just way too many stories that you guys can add context to, you can give platforms to, um, even with famous people that just haven't been asked the right question. You know, that that's another thing I love about podcasting and what it allows you to do what you do best, to do what Steve does best. And so many of the times the questions that you've asked have never been aired. <laughs> how about how about how about Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator of oh Tampa Bay Bucks, telling us he was a security guard at a mystical <laughs> concert? I mean, come on, man. Are you serious? Exactly. That's that exactly why he's awesome. You know, exactly here's this stoic guy that everyone thinks is so serious and, you know, just no nonsense and everything else. And he's sitting up here telling us about being a security guard at a, at a mystical concert or being the chauffeur for Delta Sigma Theta sorority, you know, and all of that on the side while coaching college football. It just, we just, sometimes we just like to have fun with that because one thing about the black college experience in particular with us being brought up in it is when you're in it, it, it's different from from a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Um, there are stories that 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 just you can relate to that just take you back, and we try and take you know our audience back to some of those stories and those fun days, you know. So um, hearing hearing uh, Todd talk about that, we're actually thinking about putting together a show where we take things from many of the guests that we've talked to about the HBCU experience um, and putting just together a show with their remembrances of all of that, you know, and just having fun with it. So, and that includes guys like Anquan Bolden, who was at Florida State talking about, you know, how the PWI schools take their athletes over to the black colleges to make them, the black athlete feel more comfortable about going to a predominantly white school. So you have, for instance, in, in Louisiana, LSU would take its players over to Southern University. Okay. When I was at Howard, Georgetown, his basketball program back then with Patrick Ewing and all those guys, they would always bring their recruits over to Howard to hang out okay. at our parties and, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's how funny. they do it. And those that's stories funny. are just fascinating, man. For sure. Yeah, just fun. Well, Jim, um, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, you, you're a true friend. You're a mentor. Um, you've been an incred incredible person in my life. I can't thank you for all the all the help that you have, all the support that you've given the restaurant. Uh, we love the Huddle and Flow podcast. Please check that out. We'll put links in the show notes. You can find Jim on Twitter. He is a tweeting machine. Um, but more importantly, Jim, uh, thank you for thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, I truly, truly uh, appreciate you, and I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. No, brother, I appreciate you, man. It's uh, always a pleasure. You ever need anything, you know I'm here. I appreciate the support and um, appreciate the good barbecue too. So um, I actually learned how to cook a tri tip from you guys. There so. you go. Yeah. Jim, Jim is in the barbecue game. He's got a big green egg that he got from uh, Brian over at hot sauces and more. And he's uh he's a smoking machine on the weekends. Brian moved though, right? Yeah. He, he moved over to uh, San Miguel, the, uh, the little uh, shopping center over there. It's much I saw, better. I yeah. thought that was him over there. So cool. Cool. Yeah. So he's still, he's still in the neighborhood. Yes, sir. No, I appreciate you, Sean. I appreciate Cali Comfort. And um, like I said, if you guys need me, I'm here. 
You're the best. Thank you. You got it, my man.